Gross domestic product, or GDP, is a massively flawed way to measure the quality of an economy. And yet, it's one of the better and most widely utilized options that we have at the moment, which doesn't say much for the alternatives that are currently available. GDP is a term applied to the market value of all consumer goods and services produced in a particular place within a particular time period. Notably, consumer goods and services means finished products and services. So business-to-business versions of the same are typically left out of this measurement, as are raw materials that have yet to be turned into any finished product. We are looking at the stuff that ends up on the shelves and the services that are available for purchase by you and me, rather than those only available to, for instance, Boeing or Tesco. The default time period used to measure GDP is typically a year, though not always, and the region in question is often delineated by government boundaries, so a country, a state, a city, because that makes it easier to judge how productive, by this standard at least, the economy within that specific governmental boundary has been. Despite all its flaws, and there are many, including not measuring anywhere near the entirety of economic activity happening within a region, and not measuring non-consumer product and service-related valuable things within a society, like happiness and healthfulness. Despite those downsides, measuring GDP has allowed us to better understand and map out economic cycles, which are visualized using historical data collecting and economic mapping, by downward and upward movements that are capped by booms and which are followed by contractions. In other words, the economic cycle is cyclical, going up, then down, up, then down, forever and ever. That's what the data we have indicates, at least. And because we don't have any data based on how we measure these sorts of things, that indicates that any of these types of systems, operating as they do today, have ever moved forever upward or forever downward, without then being followed by the opposite slant somewhere down the line. It's assumed that this is just the natural order of things. Up then down, up then down, forever and ever, into the indistinct future and past. That general shape, though, is typically where the predictable nature of this cycle ends. Yes, we know a downslope will be followed by an upslope, and vice versa, but the amount of time between slopes is not standardized. The grade of the slope is not currently predictable. Even the causes, the triggers, of one slope or another is not something that we're very good at foreseeing. As a result of that unknowability, according to current methods of measurement at least, these sequences and the shifts that occur alongside them can seem almost weather-like big and impactful, setting the tone for just about everything else that happens around the world, but also so complex as to seem almost metaphysical at times. We know what influences the formation of storms, but they still catch us by surprise. We understand how hurricanes work, to a large degree, but we still can't predict with perfect accuracy how big they will get and what path they will take. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that we will eventually achieve such weather-related prowess, and the same can be said of the similarly chaotic-seeming, but almost certainly, ultimately, someday understandable fluctuations found in the world of economics. 
But using today's tools, today's metrics, and today's understanding of how all the pieces fit together into the immensely complex whole, it's likely that, for a long while, we will continue to have a lot of theories, all of which are accurate part of the time, but none of which are foolproof, and none of which grants us the omniscience we'd require to fully understand and stand a chance of alleviating the downsides of this cycle. What I'd like to talk about today is the economy, interest rates, and how some recent truly boring-seeming changes in government policy reflect some potentially very interesting and impactful shifts behind the scenes. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Before we get into the article I want to unspool today, let's define some concepts that are fairly vital to understanding what that article says. The Fed is short for the Federal Reserve System of the United States, which is the system that manages U.S. banks and monetary policy. The Fed was created at the end of 1913 with the intended purpose of handling financial crises that might upend the U.S. economy and its powers and responsibilities were later expanded after the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Great Recession of the early 2000s, demonstrated that there were still weaknesses in the economic system that needed to be managed. Thus, today, the Fed is tasked with maximizing employment, stabilizing the prices of consumer goods, and managing long-term interest rates, alongside regulating banks, providing services to other portions of the government that handle money, and keeping the whole big complex interconnected tangle of the larger financial system stable. Interest refers to the amount of money paid on a loan on top of the original loan amount, and an interest rate is the rate of accumulation of that additional fee. So if I loaned you $100 and asked that you pay me back $110, the interest on that loan would be $10. If I loaned you $100 and asked that you pay me back with an interest rate of 10% per month, the interest rate on that loan would be 10% per month, and if you paid me back in two months, you would owe me $120, or $121 if I was charging interest on the new total amount owed, rather than just the principal, the original amount borrowed. The interest rate set by the Fed is a particular type of interest rate called the Federal Funds Rate. This designates the rate attached to interbank lending of excess reserves, which means it sets the interest rate on very brief loans between banks, from one bank to another, of money that they have on hand above and beyond what they are required by law to have on hand, and that on-hand money minimum is called the Reserve Requirement. At the moment, in the United States and for banks operating branches in the United States, this minimum requirement is not applicable to banks with less than $16 million in their stockpile, but it is 3% of net transaction accounts, which is the official term for deposits in fancy government bank speak, for banks with between $16 million and $122.3 million in their coffers, and it's at 10% of net transaction accounts for banks with more than $122.3 million in deposits. What that means in practice is that banks must have a certain percentage of the total money that people and businesses deposit with them as liquid available funds, ready to be handed out to customers if they request it. This helps 
in case there's a run on the bank or some other issue that requires they pay out a whole lot more cash than they typically would on a given business day, which ensures folks continue to have faith in the banking establishment as a viable place to keep cash, which is good for the reputation of the USD currency, the US government, and also good for the overall economy as it ensures banks continue to hold money for customers, which they would not if no one trusted them. And that is money that those banks can then turn around and invest in things, like small business loans, but also in loans made to individuals for things like down payments on homes. And those sorts of investments are how they make money and how they're able, in turn, to pay bank customers interest on the money that the banks hold for them. So if a bank has more money on hand than they need to adhere to those official requirements, they can loan that money to another bank so that bank will be legally safe according to those same standards or so that second bank can make loans despite not having the necessary money on hand to do that initially. The Fed sets the interest rate those banks are allowed to charge each other. And we'll get more into why this figure, this interest rate, is important a little bit later. But for now, I'll just say that it is a more fundamental and interconnected number than you might initially suspect, despite it seeming like too much of a behind-the-scenes boring-as-hell percentage to ever bother caring about. The financial crisis of 2008 began as a subprime mortgage crisis in 2007, a subprime mortgage being a type of investment asset made up of loans that were made to people who were considered to be high risk, bundled together with more of the same. So if I were to loan you $100 and you owe me that money back with interest, but I come to realize that it is unlikely that I will ever get paid back, much less in a timely manner, I might sell that loan to someone else who is willing to wait or willing to take the risk of potential non-repayment for let's say $60. If I'm a bank and I've got thousands of loans that are less likely than average to be paid back because, for instance, the folks who took out the loans don't make much money but got loans for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to purchase homes right before the real estate market collapsed, leaving them economically underwater with a new home asset that they're paying off that is worth less than they're paying for it. I could bundle a bunch of these subprime loans into packages of not very good bets and sell them at a discount to someone who has a better appetite for that kind of high-risk, high-potential-reward loan situation. That is kind of what happened in 2007. A bunch of badly vetted loans were made during a period of low interest rates. Everyone wanted to get a loan for a house or whatever else because the interest that they'd need to pay on that loan was low at that moment. And a bunch of those questionable loans were bundled into packages called mortgage-backed securities that were sold to other entities as low-risk securities rather than high-risk because of a type of insurance that could be purchased on those bundles, which ostensibly spread the risk around, but mostly in practice just made these high-risk bets seem like low-risks to people who would not necessarily have any reason to know any better. This allowed unscrupulous mortgage lenders to pass out money to anyone who wanted it, pocketing their share of that transaction, while building up a massive bubble of risk that they felt they could safely ignore, because they were then selling that risk to other entities who would maybe someday deal with any potential fallout that came about as a consequence. This situation took place within the context of outdated and lax regulation of the industry, reckless lending by very big and previously reputable banks, and a pseudo-government guarantee attached to these very questionable loans, 
due to how these bundles were passed on, insured, and packaged, all through the also questionable and outdated lending system. This led to a banking crisis, a housing crisis, and the collapse of several big banking entities. In the U.S., a full-blown collapse of our banking sector was prevented by a bailout, which, while incredibly unsatisfying, because it left a bunch of the masterminds behind this massive grift unpunished, it also kept the country's economy from suffering even more than it did. It actually probably could have been far worse than it was, if you can believe it. This crisis rippled around the world, in some cases because local versions of the same problems were happening elsewhere, and in some cases because the global banking system is so interconnected that a weakness in one country can very quickly become a weakness in others. This is a dramatically simplified version of what transpired, and it is worth looking further into the story of the 2008 crisis, if you're interested in learning more because it really was a sprawling house of cards that was built crazily tall before it all came crashing down. And it's only now, in retrospect, over a decade in the future, that we feel pretty confident that we know what happened with decent specificity, even if we've yet to reinforce all of the vulnerabilities that could lead to another similar situation in the future. And finally, a recession is a decline in economic activity and a normal part of the economic cycle. There are ups and downs in this cycle, remember, and a downturn that lasts more than a few months and which is visible across economic spectrums, GDP, sales, take-home income, employment numbers, industrial production, things like that. That is a recession, according to the United States definition of the term. The term is somewhat different in other countries. In the United Kingdom, for instance, it's defined as a downturn that lasts for two consecutive quarters. But whatever the specifics, a recession is a long downturn that is noticeable in the numbers and generally considered to be a bad thing, even if it's not abnormal or unusual. Government agencies like the Fed typically respond to recessions by pulling the various levers they have at hand to try to increase the amount of money available in the economy, while also decreasing taxation and increasing government spending all of which are attempts to juice the system to keep money flowing at a decent pace so that things don't collapse into a depression. Now, an economic depression is a lot more disconcerting than a recession, even though, typically, it's really just an amplified version of the same thing. If a recession is a noticeably longer period of economic downturn, a depression is even longer in duration and even more intense when it comes to the downswing in production, consumption, and employment. At this level, we might see banking crises which deplete the amount of credit available in a system, which in turn decreases the amount of spending and investing that's happening, which in turn causes some businesses to fail, decreasing employment numbers and reducing the amount of money people have available to spend, which also decreases the amount of money that they can put into the bank, which decreases the amount of credit available. Cycles of this kind spin and spin and spin, and with each rotation become more intense and debilitating for the economic norms of a society. Economic depressions seldom arise out of nowhere, though, and are generally the consequence of many different things happening all at once. The Great Depression of the 1930s, for instance, 
lasted nearly a decade and began in the United States with a collapse in stock prices. Amplified by the gold standard, protectionist tariff policies, a series of international banking crises, and regional, seemingly disconnected but actually connected issues like dust bowl conditions that spread across the Great Plains of the United States, which were essentially dust storms and unfarmable land that spread like a disease and emerged as a result of bad agricultural practices that had become popular in the region in prior years. So a recession is an increased but not terribly abnormal variation of normal economic cycle downswings, while a depression is a massively amplified variation that changes everything because of its scale and often its sprawl beyond regional boundaries. That groundwork laid. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled Fed Cuts Interest Rates for First Time Since 2008 Crisis. On the 31st of July, 2019, the Fed cut interest rates in the United States for the first time since 2008, a statement that for most of us is probably fairly meaningless. So let's break this down and talk about why it's important and why we non-banking, non-monetary policy people should care about the Fed and announcements of this kind. The federal funds rate, the interest rate that I mentioned earlier, the one that tells banks how much they should charge each other in interest for short-term loans of excess money that they have on hand, that was dropped to essentially zero in the wake of 2008, as the Fed tried to perk the economy back up after the whole thing was hobbled by the combination subprime mortgage crisis, housing crisis, and banking crisis that hit the United States and then the rest of the world within a very short period, primarily from 2007 to 2008. Things weren't looking good, and dropping that interest rate was meant to help stimulate economic activity. The task of setting things right was approached in this way, via this seemingly obscure mechanism, because first, it's one of the main levers the Fed is able to use to help them manage the country's monetary policy, and second, it's actually a lot more powerful than it might initially seem. Although the impact on the individual is seldom immediate with this sort of thing, it comes after a large number of other interconnected entities are impacted first, the main overarching consequence of such a decline is that it becomes less beneficial to keep your money in a bank, in terms of generating interest on it, at least. What that means in practice is that the interest you earn by keeping your money at a bank would drop precipitously enough that it actually makes more sense, by purely monetary metrics at least, to put that money almost anywhere else, making other investments or just spending it on things that you want to buy, including assets like real estate, but also things like clothes and computers and other consumer goods. The benefit for the economy, then, is that rather than stashing money away, removing it from the economic cycle that's becoming sluggish, more money is put back into direct circulation, which theoretically, at least, should help businesses that are struggling due to a recession or depression. This is part of why the Fed dropped this particular interest rate to near zero in the wake of the 2008 crisis. They wanted to stoke the flames of an economy that had gone cold for a variety of compounding reasons, and wonder of wonders, it actually seems to have worked pretty well. Near the end of 2015, seven years after the crisis itself, the Fed announced that they would be raising the interest rate by 0.25%, and they upped it again and again and again, nine more times after that initial bump, to where we were before this latest drop. 
a target rate of 2.25% to 2.5%. That range is necessary, by the way, because there will still be fluctuations and wiggle room in terms of what interest is actually paid in practice. Now, this increase to a range of 2.25% to 2.5% was actually more of a return to normalcy than some kind of elevated aberration. Even the high end of that targeted range, 2.5%, is quite low by historical standards. As recently as the early 1990s, the interest rate was over 8%, and it was nearly 7% and over 5% in the early 2000s and in the years leading up to the 2008 crisis, respectively. This drop from that range was seen as an odd move to some people within the world of monetary policy, though the rationales for why it's an odd move vary from person to person. Some believe, for instance, that it's strange to be cutting interest rates at a moment in time in which the economy is doing pretty dang well. Unemployment levels in the U.S. are low, the economy overall is flawed, but measuring up in terms of GDP, so production and consumption and such are not sending up any warning flares, and in fact seem to measure up pretty solidly to previous periods of flourishing. President Trump often brags about how well the economy is doing, and he's not wrong. He's not right that it's all to do with him and his administration, because a lot of this has been growing for a while, though it's almost certainly true that he has had something to do with it. The caveat here, however, is that although the numbers look good overall, they don't take into account the inequality inherent in how the rewards of this solid economy are being distributed. Folks who make their incomes from property and monetary assets, stocks and patents and real estate, things like that, are doing spectacularly well. People who earn paychecks, or who would be if they could find work beyond the gig economy, they're not doing so well. Not doing horribly, perhaps, but definitely not sharing in the period of plenty that we are broadly, as a nation, experiencing. There's also been a small decline in manufacturing output. Foreign growth is also declining. So those numbers that say that we're doing well in the United States do not say the same about many other major economies around the world at the moment. And there are all kinds of unpredictable variables in play, like tariff-related tweeting by the president, and other sorts of trade and diplomatic tensions that could impact trade, which, despite the relatively favorable economic situation we're experiencing today, has made folks at the Fed think that it's perhaps a good idea to batten down the hatches and prepare for a storm, just in case. Others, like President Trump himself, have said that they want the interest rate to be even lower, seeing this move as kind of a half measure, something that maybe gestures in the right direction but does not take the steps necessary to get things on the right track. The counter-argument to this position is that while the Fed seems to want to prepare for the worst just in case, it also wants to avoid accidentally overheating the economy something that can lead to immense short-term gains for those in the position to acquire them, like the aforementioned property owners, stock investors, and so on, but something that also increases the risk of burnout. The hotter the economy, the greater the chance of popped economic bubbles, overstressed infrastructure, inflated currencies, and insufficient safety nets, like we saw back in 2018, when everything fell apart after a sizzling hot period of economic activity. Alongside its other consequences, dropping the interest rate makes it cheaper to get money, to get loans, which is very good for people who can make use of such money, but it also creates and amplifies certain risks inherent in fluffing up the economy with a bunch of borrowed money, some of which might not be paid back, and some of which might be sunk into projects or assets that prove to be worth less than is paid for them. 
It also elevates the aforementioned possibility of runaway inflation, which could lead to increased prices on consumer goods and services, which can then, in turn, lead to a sudden recession, or even a depression. Dropping this interest rate to nearly zero post-2018 worked well to get employment down from its apex of nearly 10%, and it allowed many businesses to float through the mayhem, while others expanded during the same period. But it's probably not something you'd want to have going on at all times, that sort of economic heat and speed. This relatively minor drop in interest rate, then, at this moment, is being seen by some experts as a gesture toward folks lower down on the economic pyramid. Rather than being purely a boon to those who already have secure economic footing, it's meant, they say, to propagate the good times that we're experiencing now, because we seem to be right at the beginning of a moment in which the overall positive monetary outcomes are helping people who don't make their income from dividends or rent payments. In large part, it's suspected, because of our very low levels of unemployment, which puts more negotiating power in the hands of employees rather than employers, but also because some of those other benefits have finally become widespread enough to affect pretty much everybody, not just those already at the top. In other words, this several-year period of economic growth has been good mostly for the wealthy thus far, but we're seeing signs that it's starting to be good for the middle and lower economic classes as well. And it's thought that the people running the Fed realize this and are perhaps taking a small risk, the slightly elevated possibility of overheating the economy, to make it more likely that we'll stay in these good times long enough for those benefits to be felt more broadly before we reach our inevitable peak on the economic cycle parabola that we're currently on. And everything tips downward either slowly or very quickly toward a downswing and potential recession. If this is, in fact, the case, it would, in my mind at least, be a welcome change from how the Fed has managed things in the past. Though ostensibly neutral, the Fed has traditionally been neutral in favor of certain metrics, especially things like GDP, which itself is not neutral because it measures things that are more relevant to some and less so to others. A country can be wealthy in terms of GDP and still have a huge economic underclass, for instance. And because of this focus, the Fed has taken a lot of flack for seeming to work for the rich at the expense of the poor. Now, it's been posited that they are considering a broader range of metrics now, which may lead to more nuanced decisions in order to keep things overall strong, but also to coax more of that success downward to below the high up economic canopy to the more likely to be struggling denizens of the economic forest floor. As for what this is likely to mean for us in practical short-term reality, it's hard to say. After a little while, the Fed messing with their interest rate levers could cause other interest rates scattered throughout the economy, from credit cards to those attached to car loans, to decrease. We may also see businesses getting bigger and making more investments, like hiring more people and purchasing more goods and services from other businesses, which tends to be good for the overall health of the economy. Though it's also quite possible that the money we make from our savings accounts will decrease, shifting many investment portfolios from mostly traditional safe assets to riskier ones. So if you're in a position to save money in places that helps you avoid inflation and maybe make a little bit of profit but with very little risk, this interest rate drop might nudge you to invest your money someplace a little bit less stable but with the potential to actually make some decent money on it which again is part of the intended purpose here, to heat up the economy. Worth watching, moving forward, in this instance and in any future instances of monetary policy adjustment, 
is movement in variables that might influence economic uncertainty locally and around the world, and how the economy seems to respond to these nudges, as that might indicate that another, perhaps stronger, corrective nudge will be forthcoming. At the moment, we've got a very big, often unpredictable variable sitting in the White House, and one that has already quite possibly double-nudged this issue by criticizing the Fed leading up to this adjustment, and then again after saying that a 0.25% decrease is not enough, and that we need to be doing more to keep the economy churning forward at a steady clip. There are arguments to be made for and against that position, but it is fair to say, right or wrong, a tweet from the President of the United States, especially one who has shown himself to be publicly critical of decisions that he doesn't like, and even at times vengeful against people who make such decisions, could prove to be a very sharp nudge in terms of what happens next in the world of monetary policy. It's also worth watching the global economy because, as we saw firsthand during the 2008 crisis, our global economies have destinies that are interwoven with each other, and what happens next with the United Kingdom's Brexit and parliamentary shuffling, but also what happens within Brazil and Turkey and India's economies, all three of which recently dropped their own national interest rates, by the way. This is all very relevant information when we're trying to assess what might happen within any one particular government that itself is part of that larger whole. It's also important to remember that although we have some powerful tools for manipulating and measuring what's happening within our economies, large and small, we're also still figuring it all out. And even the most brilliant economic minds among us make mistakes, discover that they have been acting upon incorrect or incomplete suppositions, and at times even make decisions that influence billions of lives, only to realize in the aftermath that they forgot to carry the one. Or in the case of former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan, they put too much stock in the likelihood that self-interest would cause unregulated markets to regulate themselves. From Greenspan's congressional testimony in late 2008 about the crisis, this is Greenspan speaking, quote, Those of us who have looked to the self-interest of lending institutions to protect shareholders' equity, myself especially, are in a state of shocked disbelief, end quote. A representative asked for clarification, saying, quote, In other words, you found that your view of the world, your ideology, was not right, it was not working, end quote. To which Greenspan replied, Absolutely, precisely. You know, that's precisely the reason I was shocked, because I have been going for 40 years or more with very considerable evidence that it was working exceptionally well, end quote. This is a man who held the reins of monetary policy in the United States for nearly 20 years, from 1987 until 2006. He was considered to be something of a rock star in this space, and he was an ardent, maybe even dogmatic believer in the tenets of unbridled free market economics. And then something came along and forced him to question everything, because the policies he put into place helped make the 2008 crisis possible. And he never saw it coming. It was kind of a come-to-Jesus moment for this guy who was widely thought to know it all. Even folks who did not agree with him tended to acknowledge that he knew his stuff, even if his ideology was not to their liking. So it's fair to say, I think, that there's plenty for us all left to learn here. Economic indicators are imperfect and blind to many important realities, and the people who read them are, like all of us, ignorant about many of the realities other people living other sorts of lives take for granted. It's also the case that much of what causes fluctuations in the market and broad changes to our economies has less to do with rational, thoughtful decisions 
and more to do with what British economist John Maynard Keynes called animal spirits, a term for irrational decisions made by people who are operating within the context of greater than normal economic stresses or uncertainties. So even if we had all the right measuring tools and were measuring the right things, it still could be that our economic systems would be unreadable and unpredictable most of the time because of how humans behave, because of our complexities and the variables that influence us before we go on to influence the economies of which we are a part. This is why, despite being able to read market indicators and make decisions about interest rates, even the powerful Fed does not have the ability to predict recessions, much less depressions, with any degree of accuracy. There's generally lag time between a recession happening and us even realizing that it's occurring. We have to be inside the recession for a little while before we can get the numbers we require to understand that we are inside that recession. Thus, it's a very good idea to be conscious of how these pieces fit together, because having even a superficial understanding of these systems and cycles can help us see how money circulates through the economy and throughout the world. It can also help us see how economic actions of this kind connect to other seemingly disconnected issues, like politics, like technology. Businesses being able to get cheap money can help them make more research and development investments, for instance. And even seeing how tweets can lead to changes in how banks operate and how much we spend on our credit card bills. This knowledge won't make any of us any better at actually predicting recessions, probably. Even a doctorate in economics doesn't move the puck too far in that regard. But it can help us see the bigger picture and factor our understanding of uncertainty into our math when it comes to this and any other sufficiently complex field of inquiry that we might try to understand. The book that I'd like to recommend today is just a really fantastic piece of nonfiction called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. This book is about data, and it's specifically about data and how it is gathered with an innate gender bias. Now, anytime you say the word gender, there's a chance that you're going to turn certain people off because people don't like to have uncomfortable conversations. But this is a type of bias that is just very explicit across the history of all different types of data gathering. And it's something that informs the way that society is set up, the way that technology is developed, the way that medicine is made to an incredible degree. It's absolutely monumental. And this was something that I was aware of in a very superficial way before I picked up this book. But what this book is, is essentially a collection of examples of ways in which what the author calls the gender data gap, the gap in knowledge that we have between knowing about cis males and cis females, how that influences essentially everything that we do. Things that you wouldn't think could possibly be influenced by this type of conversation, by things related to gender, are in fact in sometimes insidious, sometimes pernicious ways, definitely influenced by it in a dramatic way. And just a heads up, this is not a book that is going to go out and demonize anybody for this state of affairs. What it does is presents a bunch of incredibly valuable information that we can take and that we can utilize along with suggestions as to how we might do this better. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez.
You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find show notes and a transcription for this episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube, pretty much all of them. So feel free to reach out and say howdy. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.